Beloved, if you would turn in God's holy word to Hebrews chapter 8, the book of Hebrews chapter 8. It's called Hebrews because it's written to Jewish Christians, reminding them that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. If you had to put it in a three-word synopsis, that would be the, the theme of the book. Jesus is better. The preacher is writing to these Christians, these Jewish Christians who are coming out of Judaism, and all of the, the picture, all the sensory, all the visual that was in the Jewish cultic system. And some are complaining, um, or some are having second thoughts about returning to that system, having come to Jesus Christ, because they're being persecuted, they're, they're suffering, they're, they're, they're facing hardship, and they're doubting whether... Jesus is worth following. The message is, don't go back. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's, he's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. And since chapter 5, we've been told that Jesus is better than the Levitical system that you've left behind. For Jesus has been given a priesthood on an oath. Well, today, in chapter 8, we're going to begin looking at, in verses 1 to 6, how Christ's priesthood is superior how Christ's priesthood is the fulfillment at all that typologically pointed forward to and is found in fulfillment of him, that he is the antitype, he is the fulfillment, he is the yes and amen to every, every promise that God has made. So let's begin reading. I think I want to begin reading in chapter 7, verse 23, just to set the context, and I'll read through chapter 8, verse 6. This is God's holy word. Hebrews 7, verse 23, the former priest, that is the priest on the Levitical system, the priest of Aaron, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost or completely those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law that is the Mosaic law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests. But the word of the oath, that is the oath from Psalm 110 verse 4, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point... And aren't you glad that he says this, right? Now the point in what I'm saying, right, in case you don't get it, let me crystallize it for you. The point of what we are saying is this, and here it is. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, that is, in the holy of holies, that's in his mind, in the true tent or the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man, 
For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, being Jesus Christ, the antecedent, Jesus also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, that is, according to the Mosaic law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed, better rendering, he was warned. He was warned by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern or the type that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Better promises, a better mediator, and a better covenant. All that came before it was a picture book pointing to the reality that would come in the better mediator, Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, we would come and ask your blessing, that you would take my weak efforts and bless them and feed your people, that we might be encouraged, that we might hear the bell, the music of the gospel this day, the forgiveness of sins, imputed righteousness, and a priest who brings a better covenant with better promises, because he's the best of all. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Prior to Luther rediscovering the gospel in the 16th century by faith alone in Christ alone. You could say Luther was a troubled soul. Psychologists love dissecting Luther, putting him under the microscope. So they say, well, Luther, you know, he had a lot of daddy issues. There were a lot of problems with his daddy. His daddy was a strict disciplinarian. Luther was always trying to merit his father's favor. He could never satisfy his earthly father. And somehow that framed and was the paradigm, the lens through which Luther saw all of his life. He was a troubled soul, Luther was. Luther had sought God through various means of the Roman Catholic Church. He had, he had tried confession. Luther tried praying to the saints. He tried the relics of the church. He tried works of penance, but nothing worked. The peace of God eluded him. Humanly speaking, Luther found that nothing could overcome the reality of sin's guilt. He knew God was holy, and he knew himself to be a sinner. And he thought, how am I ever going to satisfy God's demands? How am I ever going to be accepted with God? How am I ever going to have forgiveness for sin's guilt and power over sin's power. But with his rediscovery of the gospel, Luther found what was different was a different way of relating to God. He found a, a different covenant, if you will. He, he had been functioning under a covenant of works, trying to work his way to God. But now he had found a, a covenant based on grace. That is a the covenant of, that's fulfilled by another, by the works of another. 
What Luther found in Jesus Christ alone was sin's pardon and acceptance with God. Roland Banton wrote a marvelous biography about Luther, and he said, Luther was like a man climbing in the darkness of a whirling staircase in the steeple of an ancient cathedral. In the blackness, Luther reached out to steady himself, and his hand laid hope of a rope. He was startled to hear the clanging of a bell. It was that bell that Luther found and rang there in the 16th century that reawakened the whole world to the liberating gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what Luther needed is what every sinner needs, is a perfect high priest, a priest that doesn't need to make a, a sacrifice for his own sins, as well as the sins of the people he represents. A priest who doesn't merely serve in the copy, in the tabernacle, in the tent, the earthly tent there in Exodus, but one who has actually entered into heaven itself, who's gone into the holy place where God dwells in the holy of holies, having made a sacrifice for sinners once and for all. You see, friends, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that in Jesus Christ, we have such a high priest. The question he wants to answer here for us this morning in chapter 8, verses 1 to 6 is, how is Christ's priesthood superior as he contrasts it with the priesthood of Aaron and Levi? And there are three things he wants to, to see. That Christ's priesthood is better because it's a better sacrifice. It's better because it's ministered in heaven itself. And it's better because it actually gets the job done. It actually propitiates, it actually secures and accomplishes salvation. So it's a better sacrifice, rendered in a better location with a better result, a result that actually accomplishes what God set it forth to do. So that's the three points. Jesus offered a better sacrifice. Jesus ministers in a better tent. And Jesus secured a better outcome. So first, Jesus offered a better sacrifice in verse 3. We're told in verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. You see, the, the priest would sacrifice the offering there on the altar outside the tabernacle. And once the sacrifice was made, the blood would be taken from that sacrifice and taken into the holy place, into the most holy place. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, he would go into the holy of holies and, and take the blood of the sacrifice. And this sacrifice would make atonement for sins. Now, to modern ears, this sounds barbaric, doesn't it? Who else sings about blood? Who else speaks about blood in this way other than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? But it's our song, is it not? We sang this morning, how precious is the blood of Jesus. And to modern ears, again, this is barbaric and, and actually gross when you think about it. But what we must remember is that the whole Levitical system was symbolic to show the debt and the cost of sin before a holy God. For the Word of God says that the soul that sins will surely die. 
and the life of the flesh is in the blood. You see, friends, for forgiveness to be granted, blood was required. And it's through blood atonement that forgiveness is secured. And the blood of the animal functioned as a, a substitute rather than your blood being shed because you committed the sins a sacrifice, a substitute would be put forward. And this animal's life would be taken as it would be dragged to the altar. And the priest and all of his garments and earthly ornamentation with great specificity, it's detailed for us in Exodus. He would take the animal and he would take his knife and then slay the animal's throat and cut it right there. And the blood would flow all picturing for us, again, the, the cost of sin before a holy God. That the blood was the substitute for the sinner. But even in the Old Testament, everyone knew that the blood of an animal could not satisfy God. The, the blood of bulls and goats could not get it done. We're told in chapter 7, verse 19, that the law, the Levitical system, made nothing perfect. It made nothing perfect. Not because it was weak. No, God had ordained the whole system. The whole architecture, everything regarding the, the Jewish cultic system had been prescribed by God. But it was a picture pointing to the reality that would come in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. See, all those animals, all those sacrifices simply pointed forward to the one who could satisfy God's justice. And God in his infinite wisdom had set this system up to represent that what he would do. A picture of what Christ would accomplish. Now look at verse 3b, the second half. Notice what it says there. Every high priest offers sacrifices and gifts. Thus is it is necessary for this priest. Who's the antecedent here? He speaks of. He speaks of Christ. Christ would have something to offer as a high priest. And what did Christ offer? What no other priest had ever offered. He offered himself in chapter 7, 27. We're told that he offered up himself. Christ was the priest and the sacrifice. And he, he offered up himself once for all. The just for the unjust to bring us to God. You see, saints, he is both. Priest and sacrifice. Hebrews 10.5 will go on to tell us when, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body, a body you have prepared for me. And what was he going to do with this body? He was going to lay down this body as a sacrificial lamb to pay for your sins, for those wicked thoughts that you had this week, for those straying thoughts even as you have them right now. When you're not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with every molecule of your being, you've fallen short of the glory of God, and the soul that sins shall surely die. So either you die or a substitute must die. But can blood of the bulls and goats take away human sin? Are we that foolish to think that a goat reluctantly being dragged to an altar and having its throat slit, having its blood sprinkled on this mercy seat, there in the desert, propitiating and satisfying for sins? No, Christ. Christ was the Lamb. As we saw last week in 726, it was fitting. It was appropriate that we should have such a high priest. A high priest who was holy, who was 
innocent, who was unstained. That when Christ offered himself, he offered the, the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect man. The one without blemish. Who never erred, who never had a wicked thought, who never had a lustful thought. Men, in all of his life, his heart never strayed from the alliance that he had with his father. Oh, I love to do my father's will. Oh, to please my father 24-7, 365, for 33 years. Kids, he obeyed his parents perfectly. He never questioned Mary and Joseph in the home. He never said, well, I don't know, I don't really want to do that. No, cheerful obedience did he render to his folks, to his parents. You see, when God made him who knew no sin as our substitute, the debt was paid, paid at Calvary. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. His blood alone can make the foulest sinner clean. He was the perfect and unblemished sacrifice. You see what he's doing? He, he's contrasting. He's saying, now that Christ has come in the fullness of time, the law has given way now to the reality to which it pointed, Jesus Christ. The law was the tutor to lead you to Christ, the one who would fulfill the law, both in his active obedience as a faithful Adam, as a, a true Israel, and not only fulfill it in his active obedience, but also undergo the curse of the law in your stead. For cursed is everyone, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the law. He became a curse for us. So why would you go back? Why would you go back now that the reality has come? You see, the original readers were strained because they had taken their eyes off of Christ. Right In the Jewish system, they were priests. They were still sacrificing. Many believe they're in Jerusalem when Hebrews is written. The blood of animals was still being spilt. And the writer's telling them, we don't need to go back to that system. That system ran the course. Its shelf life is over. It's now obsolete. Christ has come. But we say to ourselves as we look at them from afar, how could they be so foolish? And yet, do we not do the same thing? Do we not stray just as easily? looking to other things to make us acceptable to God, like Luther, other sacrifices rather than the once-for-all sacrifice of God. Right? The readers are looking to Moses and the Levitical system. We, on the other hand, come to God asking him to accept us because something our hands have done. Right? I'm in ministry. Surely God will accept me. Right? I teach the Bible. I, I serve in the Sunday school program. Surely God will accept me. I had more bad, good days than bad days this week. I had my quiet time every day this week. See what I've done, God? See my righteousness, oh God? I obey my parents. Look at those other kids. I'm not like them. I'm not like those other sinners over there. I give a tenth of all that I have. Fast four or five times a week. Thank you, God, that I'm not like them out there, outside the building. We're like those folks over there on Carytown. I thank you, Father, that I'm not like them. I go to All Saints. I'm Reformed Presbyterian. I memorize the Shorter Catechism. I've read Bovink and Burkhoff and Owen and Baxter, Edwards, Calvin. You see, ministry, deceptive. 
How about social service, right? Social causes are all the rave with young people today. And I think that's because we have had a nihilistic culture and young people, the, the younger generation, are looking for purpose. So existentially, you have to create it. So they want to get involved. They want to leave their mark on the world. So they bring their, their services to God. Say, God, look at my service. Look at the way I serve in the soup kitchen. Look how I serve the RNC or the DNC or whatever it is under the sun. Oh, Father, aren't you pleased with what I've done? Or how about the, the good works, just law-keeping in general? This was the problem in Galatia. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, Who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? How did you get the Holy Spirit? Was it through the works of the flesh? Because you're so obedient? Or was it because you heard the gospel when it was preached? And you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? And you looked outside of your own works? You looked to His works? And you found the peace of God that passes all understanding in Jesus Christ? You see. The lie is that we live, or rather, we get in by faith and then stay in by works. Right? You see, many of us this morning are living this way. Well, justification, yeah, that's something God does in the beginning. He, he justifies me, and then I, then I have to go out and earn God's favor. I've got to go out and work God's favor. I've got to secure God's favor somehow through the works of the flesh, through my sanctification, through my own obedience. Oh, beloved the folks being addressed in Hebrews in the end are really no different than us. You see, all our hearts are idol factories. We're all prone to rest in something other than Christ. The, one for all, the once for all sacrifice for our acceptance. You see, there is no better sacrifice. He is the best sacrifice. He's also rendered in the best location. That's the second point. Why is Jesus' priesthood superior? Well, it's the best, better sacrifice. But also, Jesus ministers in a better tent. In verses 2 and 4 and 5, on the Day of Atonement, after taking the, the animal's blood into the holy place and sprinkling on the mercy seat, we're told in verse 5 that they're only serving in a copy, in a shadow of the heaven reality. And we know the copy of the earthly tabernacle, according to Exodus 25-40, was constructed according to the pattern that Moses was shown on the temple, now, or rather on the mountain. Now, how did Moses know this? Did Moses go up on the mountain and have a visual experience, revelation of God? Evidently. How did he know? But did you notice the exactitude, the, the, the specificity there that God lays out in Exodus for the construction? You see, we can't just be willy-nilly. We just can't bring any worship to God, right? We can't just be improvising. We have to worship him according to the way he's prescribed. And he prescribes it down to the cubit. This far and no further. Do this, do that. Don't do this, do that. Right? We have to worship him according to the truth he's revealed in his word. But even that truth, that copy, that shadow, it could not secure the forgiveness of the people in the tabernacle. Why? Because it only foreshadowed the reality. It was a man-made tent that signified the symbolic presence of God in heaven. What was needed was a priest who could go beyond the copy, who could get beyond the shadow there in Jerusalem and enter into heaven itself. 
and what the symbolic pictures of the Old Covenant tabernacle and temple subsequently and the Levitical priesthood showed and could not accomplish, the Lord Jesus did accomplish. It was not because the copy and the shadow were not authorized by God. They certainly were. But because they were symbolic, they pointed forward to the sacrifice and to the location where God would meet with people, not with animal blood, but with perfect human blood of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. Notice what it says there in verse 2. Having this high priest, Jesus Christ, at God's right hand in majesty, a minister in the holy place, right, the holy of holies, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So the original audience, again, is being asked, are you really going to go back to the copy, to the shadow, now that the realities come? Are you going to go back to a man-made tent with animal blood to intercede for you? Or are you going to persevere and press on in a perfect priest who offered a perfect sacrifice in heaven itself? And before we cast stones at the original audience, we need to pause and assess our own propensity to look to other sacrifices for our acceptance, right? Surely thinking... If I just do X, Y, and Z, God will accept me, right? Many times and so often in my own life, I think if I'm just contrite enough, if I'm just miserable enough, if I'm just beating myself, if I self-flagellate myself like Luther did, right? If I just get sorry enough, then that somehow will propitiate and make me acceptable to God. But saints, no amount of penance or even remorse will get the job done. What we need is someone who can go into the very presence of God and serve as our advocate. And that's the whole point. He's going to tell us in chapter 9, 24, For Christ has entered, notice what it says, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but Christ has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. On our behalf, Christ is now pleading those five bleeding wounds, they strongly plead for me in God's presence. And I thought about this this week. Isn't it interesting that throughout Christ's whole entire ministry, Christ never went into the Holy of Holies in the temple? Even when he was on the temple grounds, he had every right to go into the Holy of Holies. He checked all the boxes. He met all the qualifications. He went through every layer accordingly. And yet he never tried. Why did not Christ go into the Holy of Holies in the copy there in Jerusalem in the, in the temple? Because he came not to serve in the shadow. He came to serve not in the copy, but he came to serve in the true tent. He came to heaven itself. Michael Kruger gives this illustration. He says in real estate... There are three crucial criteria in all of real estate, and you know what they are. Location, location, location. Well, when you're choosing an advocate and you're choosing a high priest, you want a high priest who can get you not merely into the copy, into the shadow, into the earthly tent made with the hands of men. You want a high priest who can take you into the very presence of God. So when you're choosing a high priest, it's the same thing, location, Location, your location. 
So Christ renders a better sacrifice. He ministers this sacrifice in a better location. And one of the other things I wanted to share with you this morning as I've been thinking about this, particularly as it applies to reading the Bible, as it relates to shadow, oftentimes people will ask me, how should I read the Old Testament? Well, the first thing you probably should do is pick up the book of Hebrews and get really acquainted with Hebrews and what Hebrews is saying about how to read the copy and the shadow of the Old Testament, right? And with shadows, what's interesting about shadows, you can tell a lot about the person by their shadow, right? You can see their form. You can see basically what they're wearing, whether they're male or female, right? There's no contradiction between the shadow and the reality, just like there's no contradiction between the Old Testament and the revelation of Christ in the New Testament. But you need the revelation of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the light of the New Testament to help us understand the shadow of the old. So without the 27 New Testament books, we have a hard time understanding those 39 Old Testament books. You see, we understand all that's going on in the Old Testament, in the copy, in the shadow, through the light of the New Testament, in Jesus Christ. So why would we go back to the shadow, right? We must persevere in Jesus Christ. We must persevere in the one who is the ultimate reality, Right? Now that the sun has come, the shadow fades away because it's not what is ultimate. Just like the blueprints of a home that you're building will be put away once the home is complete. In Christ, we have the true and ultimate priest who rendered the true and ultimate sacrifice and the true and ultimate tabernacle. What the Levitical priesthood failed to do, Christ secured in our behalf. So he's superior because he offers a better sacrifice in a better tent. And then thirdly and lastly, he secures a better outcome. We know this from verse 1. Notice what it says there. We know that Christ accomplished what he set forth to do, what the Levitical priesthood only foreshadowed, because we're told in verse 1, now the point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. Notice what it says. One who's what? Seated at the right hand of God in the throne of majesty in heaven. You see, beloved, Christ, having accomplished all that the Father had given him to do, is now seated. The Old Testament priests, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 1, never sat. There were no chairs in the Holy of Holies. Day after day, sacrifices would be made, right, because they could not secure forgiveness, because the blood of bulls and goats could not get it done. And I thought to myself, we sometimes have a a very similar experience as those Old Testament Levitical priests, right? You ever had a job where there was no metric to judge success, that the work was never never ending, right? I remember working at Costco early on when I was in college, thinking they put me out on the lot to push baskets. And that was so redundant and so mind-numbing. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be an excellent student. Right? He said such motivation to encourage me to persevere and to pursue excellence in education because I knew I didn't want to push those baskets forever. It was mind-numbing. There was no meaning. There was no metric by which to know when the job was done. And there are many days like that for young mothers, aren't there? At times, mothers feel this way, where every day may feel like Groundhog's Day, right? The work of Levitical priests was like that. It was never done. They never sat down. Every day, morning and evening, they made a sacrifice. 
Some people live their religious lives like that, don't they? To them, the Christian life is just one big grind. There's no joy. There's no rest. It's just grinding out days in religious activity, hoping that at the end of the day, end of life, God will finally accept you. God will finally love you because of all the stuff you've done. Reminded of the, the Greek mythology figure Sisyphus. Remember Sisyphus? He was the one who was cursed to push that rock up the hill only to have it roll to the bottom of the hill, only to do it again and again and again. And I wonder how many of us this morning are living our Christian life this way. Just the drudgery, no joy in Joyville. We're joyless, right? The joy of the Lord is not our strength. We just do it over and over again. So this morning, where is your hope? Where is your rest? In your religious works, hoping that in the end they outweigh your sin? Most religions, dare I say, all of them function this way. There's no rest for burdened sinners. The good news of the gospel is that you can rest. You can rest today and forever because Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice in heaven itself once and for all. You can rest. You can come unto him with your burdens and find rest for your souls because he's seated at God's right hand. His work is done. Luther found this out. Early on, he was all about securing God's favor through everything but Jesus, until one day he read in Romans 1.17, For in the gospel the righteous of God is revealed from heaven, from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see how liberating that is? To rest in the secured righteousness of Jesus. To rest in what he's procured, what he's earned, what he's won for us in his finished work. So saints, I ask you as I began, do you hear the bell? Do you hear the bell ringing? That Luther rang, if you don't look up to heaven, to the true tent, to Jesus Christ, the, the priest who's been given a priesthood that's eternal in the order of Melchizedek because of his indestructible life and find rest for your soul. Look to the finisher and author of your faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who secured so great a salvation for us that we can rest in the finished work of Christ, that we can be children adopted by the Father in the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit who've been given the Spirit to seal us for the day of redemption, guaranteeing our great inheritance and living out of that rest, working out of that rest, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, always looking to the author and the finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ, the Lord, our righteousness. Father, we thank you. Son, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for granting us faith to believe these things. Be with us now as you come to the table and feed on Jesus Christ. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.